Hey listener, it's Brian Kelly, The Points Guy. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to remind you to check out my brand new vlog. Head over to youtube.com slash Kelly and follow along on my crazy travel adventures like jumping out of a helicopter in Colombia. What? And making some awesome new friends around the world while I do it. New episodes are out every Tuesday and Thursday. Once again, youtube.com slash Kelly. Remember, getting there can be more than half the fun. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, and welcome to Talking Points. It's your host, Brian Kelly, the Points Guy. Talking Points is a podcast that's all about travel. We talk to the people you need to hear about in the space, from executives of the top loyalty programs, influencers, TPG staffers, and more. On this episode, we've got another best of for you. This time, it's a wrap-up of conversations I've had with a few of the women who are absolutely dominating the travel space, like Karen Seidman Becker, the CEO and co-founder of Clear. For me, it changed the way I felt my moral obligation to make this world a better place, which is how I send my kids off to school every morning, right, with that sort of mantra. And Clear was the platform that, that absolutely fulfilled that need for me to leave the world better than I found it. Kristen Lemkoff, the CMO of Chase. If you told me then that I would be in this role today and this role would even exist and the company would look like it does today, I would have never believed it. And Joanna Garrity, JetBlue's president and COO. I often think women sometimes are reluctant to put their hat in the ring, so to speak, because they don't have all the qualifications and that's something a little unique to women and and you shouldn't shy away from doing that. So get ready for some boss ladies and travel point hers on Talking Points. Up first, Karen Seidman Becker, the CEO and co-founder of Clear. She talks about how biometric technology is changing the way we travel. She explains how Clear is a safe and secure way to get through security and what a membership looks like. Karen also shares some super exciting expansion plans. Let's just talk a little bit about the history of Clear. So I'm one of the, I don't know what original Clear members back in the day before you owned it. So Clear was started by a company. A lot of people signed up and then went bankrupt, right? What, what exactly happened there? Yeah, the bankruptcy word, never a good word. Uh, and so Clear was started as a response to 9-11 in partnership with the government by Steve Brill and a team of innovative folks who thought biometrics were a great solution to enhance security and delight travelers. And they were right. But they might have been early. The economic downturn, biometrics were probably ahead of their time. And so they were levered. They had debt due. The world fell apart in 2009. The technology and cost structure wasn't where it should have been. And so they shut down very unceremoniously. Yeah, June I remember. June 22nd, it was, 2009. We and still they were Denver the based, signs. right? Or something? They were New York City they based. York. I uh, remember so vividly going through the JFK, the old Delta terminal when I signed up. And there was all this debate because biometrics and giving so much of that data back then was really controversial. So, so the company went under. 
company went under. And so before Clear, you were in the hedge fund biz? Sure. You're, Just like every good operator. I, you know, <laughs> Jeff Bezos, for the record, worked at a hedge fund. Just saying. <laughs> um, but Do you feel like that has a bad connotation? I think it does, and yet I think it should have an excellent connotation because we were value-oriented investors, long-term investors, looking across different businesses. And I had the fortunate position to have a front-row seat to companies like Priceline post-2002 that almost died and had a brilliant management team that turned it around, to see Jeff Bezos, who people thought was going to die in the dot-com blow-up, turn Amazon into what it is, to see Steve Jobs return and turn Apple, which started with the candy-colored computers upon his return, and build a platform. And Mm -hmm. what you see across those companies is management teams with not so much historical experience in their industries. I mean, Steve, yes, but not at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And focus on the customer, build solutions for the customers, build the customer's trust, and then build this platform, which if I can delight you on the Priceline brand, I can use this travel platform for bookings and active and all these different things. If I can delight you on my hardware desktop Mm -hmm. platform, we can take that to laptops, we can take that to iPods, and the iPod ultimately becomes a phone. And so you keep going. Amazon, if I can delight you with books, I can sell you anything. And so, and then continue to optimize it, and it's never good enough. And so, I was fortunate to watch all that. They they defied all the critics. We're sitting in the mm-hmm. indefatigable room at Clear. <laughs> that is our core mantra, right? Persistent and tireless, and to watch incredible people do incredible things. And as I like to say, I didn't want to die and have people say I pick good stocks. <laughs> uh, the opportunity to build a company that was member centric, and when I say member centric, it's team members and customer member centric. Uh, that made our world safer and that delighted customers. That was an awesome opportunity. So, so you saw it, even though it had this, you know, the slow kind of, well, actually quick car crash sort of end in the, in the you saw the opportunity in that. And what was it? Just yeah. did you know the original founders? So here's a bizarre, no, I did not. And I wasn't a member. I looked at it once at the Grand Hyatt going up to a conference, but did not join, but was invested in one of the biometric pro- solutions um, that helped build Clear, and that was L1. Uh, and so... What I saw was, ready for my McDonald's analogy, (laughs) long time ago in 2002, we invested in McDonald's. And McDonald's had blown up the stock for a variety of different reasons. And everyone said, oh, McDonald's, obesity lawsuits, it's the end. And what you saw was a giant line of cars out the drive-thru and a company that investors no longer cared about. And so I call that the dislocation between Main Street and Wall Street. Mm -hmm. At Clear, what we saw was the opportunity to build a biometric platform, a secure identity platform. So that's from a research perspective. But when I sat next to people at a dinner party or talked to people and said, hey, we're looking at Clear, they would literally whip out the card from their wallet. It was shut down. They, you know, hadn't gotten their money back. They didn't know where their data was. They were frustrated. They were mad. They kept the card and they said, we love Clear. We miss Clear. Mm -hmm. The power of that brand, the power of that service and that experience, that was it. And so to know that we had a vision of a secure identity platform, that biometrics were going to change the world, they were doing it outside the U.S., not yet inside the U.S., and to see the passion that customers who had not been treated very well, actually they were treated terribly at the mm-hmm. end, the power of that brand. That they brand, still loved it after all that. That's that was, that was the best focus group you could have had. 
I always like to think whenever people say you're doing something crazy, you're probably on to something. Yeah. So I'm sure you had no shortage of people in your life that were like, stay away. I mean, I love my mom dearly, <laughs> but the thought of her daughter leaving Wall Street yep. to buy a bankrupt company was not good cocktail party conversation. Yeah. And how many members did were there when it shut down originally? There were 190,000 members when it shut down originally. After about five years, there were 18 airports, but the majority of customers came from six airports, Denver, Orlando, San Francisco, New York, Atlanta. And so we the the stuff was in storage. The hardware, Ken and I were visiting warehouses to find kiosks and cartons of information (laughs) in storage facilities. There were no employees, and we were uh, so the customer. We were like you know the customer service, the telephone operator, the email writer, the marketing department, the operations team, and we went about building. Who a were team. your first couple hires? A treasurer, someone in accounting, a COO who came from the airport uh, airline industry at the time. So some folks in operations, and then we had a lot of folks on the technology and innovation side, some of whom had experience with old clear or the defense industry or biometrics, and then a customer service person. So we look, it's 2019 now, and you've got 3 million members active. So congratulations on that pretty impressive growth. Thank you. I guess my first question is, do you consider Clear a travel company? No. So we consider Clear a secure identity platform, which is using biometrics to make the world safer and easier to navigate. Secure and frictionless. There are so many different words that we bat around here. We're building this connected world. And travel connects the world. So I think it's an incredibly important vertical. It is the place where security and identity not converge but collide and uh, where customer experience matters so deeply and where security matters so deeply. And it's also where Clear died and where it was the most obvious use case to bring it back, I will say that I've been in, I'm from D.C., my parents worked for the government, my grandparents were immigrants, I cared deeply about the state of our country, about security here. Mm-hmm. I'm also a paranoid, neurotic New Yorker, <laughs> and, and you know, 9-11 was... Were you trans- in the city on 9-11? I was not. I actually took a plane on 9-10. I flew to L.A. on a 10 p.m. flight on September 10th. And then the next morning, I fell asleep with CNBC on at the hotel, going to a Merrill Lynch media and telecommunications conference, and woke up to the voice of Mark Keynes on CNBC a few hours after I landed. And there were people I knew in those towers. There were people that people at the conference knew. It was a surreal experience. Uh, We were stuck there, got back many days later. My parents worked in D.C. trying to find them. My husband was here in New York. And... It changes the way you look at the mm-hmm. world. And I, for me, it changed the way I felt my moral obligation to make this world a better yep. place, which is how I send my kids off to school every morning, right, with that sort of mantra. And Clear was the platform that, that absolutely fulfilled that need for me to leave the world better than I found it. I mean, because that is such an interesting challenge. Like, everyone sort of hates airport security, but everyone knows that it's, you know, 9-11 is not in the distant past, and we all want to make sure flying is safer. But it's always so hard because... And, you know, let's we've agreed today we're not going to put down the TSA. I mean, the, the TSA serves an important role. That's for another, another podcast episode. But, I mean, it is... As travelers, we don't want to be inconvenienced, yet we want to be safe. For people who don't know CLEAR, explain the ecosystem... 
in yeah. an airport? You know, like what is what information does Clear have, and yeah. why does Clear make us safer? So before we even get there, I think to your point on TSA, and it's worth putting forth TSA and. 2001 put forth the concept of a registered traveler program and started, right? And so I want to say, and I think people don't recognize it enough, the power of public-private partnership. And CLEAR is here. I would argue TSA at the beginning incubated CLEAR, right? CLEAR is here because TSA thought that working with the private sector on innovation to Mm -hmm. make things safer and easier was a good idea. I'd like to think that we proved their concept right and are taking it further, faster, in partnership with them. And CLEAR is about, to your point, how do you make things more secure? How do you make them more frictionless? And I would say travel is beyond airports. You think about trains. You think about cruises. you got to put that whole travel ecosystem together. And it's ensuring that you are who you say you are. You are you. And we know something about you, whether it be that you have a boarding pass or, you know, from a, a pre-check perspective, which is a TSA program, but there's also other opportunities to say you're a known traveler, and that can change your experience. And so CLEAR is about a customer-centric enrollment process. Enrollment in these programs is difficult and often not consumer-friendly. Mm-hmm. And so CLEAR was about making it a less-than-five-minute enrollment process where we are digitally authenticating your identity document. Like, every time you're taking out your driver's license. Why? We're going to say it's real once. It's absolutely real on a digital basis, not on a manual mm-hmm. basis. And then you're going to get a uh, trusted identity quiz to ensure you're the person on that document, right? So the document's real. You're the person on the document. Fingerprints, iris image, and face become those documents. Your credit card, because you're paying, and your driver's license. And so it's almost like you're merging with your wallet when you enroll. And so every time you're putting your fingerprints down or your iris or your face, you are those documents. Mm -hmm. And you are the information on those documents, right? So that's about the enrollment process. That's the enrollment and then the verification process. Every time your fingerprints or iris, which is what we're using today at the airport, reflect what you're constantly pulling out of your wallet in, you know, sub one second. And then on top of that, from that ecosystem perspective, we've then built through APIs into different things. So we've just launched in 20 different markets with Delta biometric boarding pass. If you go to LaGuardia today, your fingerprints are both your driver's license and your boarding pass, taking nothing out of your wallet. You go into the lounge, you use your biometrics to check in at 50 different lounges today. Again, taking not your boarding pass or your yeah. you know, driver's license. I hate that when you got license. your phone, your license. Your... But why? Why yeah. are you doing all these things? And then think about the power of facial as we continue to roll that out. It's another nonstop. So biometric bag drop, which we have rolled out in two markets, biometric identity and biometric boarding pass, biometric lounge access, the biometric boarding. We've also done outside of airports biometric payment and age validation for alcohol because mm-hmm. you are your driver's right. license and you are your There's credit no card. Fake IDs. Why are you... I'm glad I, know, I already I'm went through college. That for everyone. Um, we don't have ubiquity yet, yeah. but when we do. Yeah. Uh, and so the fact of the matter is that you're whipping, you know, just like you're taking out your driver's license and your boarding pass, it would be your driver's license and your credit card. You are you. So you could literally, in that curb to gate experience, from the time you enter the airport to the time you board the plane, take nothing out of your wallet, have a better customer experience. And it's not just the lines. What kills me is when people thought, well, Clear is a line skipping company. It's no more a line skipping company than going to an ATM versus a bank teller. Mm-hmm. You don't think, oh, you're in line for the bank teller and I'm at the ATM machine. So you're, you're, you're just saying you're using technology for an automated process and that automation scales. You could put eight bank tell, you know, eight ATM machines. And so we continue to grow Clear Pods 
Mm-hmm. In, in the verification lanes and the enrollment so that you can verify eight people every one, one and a half seconds. Then you think about adding e-gates to that. You think about, I mean, we yeah. have so many ideas. Our view is to be the innovation partner to airports, to airlines, well, to, to the government. Thinking, let's talk about data because, you know, we're on the heels of the biggest, you know, Marriott breach. And you must have an incredible amount of data on where people travel, what people are now buying. So how do you protect that? And, you know, what yeah. do you say to people who say, no way, clear, that's too much clearer, like, yeah. I don't want to give you it. So, number one, go back to how we started, which is we bought this company and it had destroyed trust. And so from the very beginning, from day one, it was about rebuilding that trust and trust and integrity and protecting data, securing data, protecting privacy has been part of our DNA from the very first day. And so it is incorporated in every aspect of our business from the architecture to the policies, to the process. It's really important that people know we will not sell or share that data. We sell experiences by securing your data and protecting your privacy. And that has, we've been banging the drum on that now since 2010. And so with everything that's happened in the past 24, 36 months, magnified over the last eight to 10 months um, with what's gone on on Facebook and other mm-hmm. places, we just keep saying it louder and louder that we are about protecting your data. We do not sell or share data. And, you know, it's a complicated yeah. world and it is so important to build that trust. And it's also important that that's why we have ambassadors bringing technology to life. I believe in technology and automation, but I think interesting to biometrics is humanity, whether it be your fingerprints or your iris or the humanity of our folks talking to people, our ambassadors, and sharing and answering questions because trust is everything. Thanks to the CEO and co-founder of Clear, Karen Seidman Becker. You can find that full episode, Everything You Need to Know About Clear, in the Talking Points feed. It's episode number 11. Kristen Lemkos is a CMO of Chase. In our next Boss Lady segment, she explains the evolution of the Sapphire cards and the future of credit card marketing. Here's Kristen. Kristen Lemkoff, your products have enriched TPG readers with points so they can travel the world. So thanks for sitting down with us today and thanks for coming. talking all about credit cards and loyalty. So you've been with Chase for over 20 years now. Yes, indeed. So Hard to believe. Do you want to talk about your experience and rise to chief marketing officer? Sure. I mean, it, I, I think it was a journey of a lot of hard work and a lot of people who believed in me maybe even before I did and then a few happy accidents along the way. So I started as a PR person in the investment bank going back to 1998, and I took the job simply because I wanted to be able to walk to work. So if you told me then that I would be in this role today, and this role would even exist, and the company would look like it does today, I would have never believed it. I'm reading Beth Comstock's book, and one of the pieces of advice that she gives that I think I had adhered to in my career is to take the job that no one else wants. Uh, instead of fighting for turf yeah. or in fighting, just take the thing that no one else wants and run run to work. And so I think that was a pattern for me. And then I just ended up doing well at whatever I did. And the, did. the travel bug had bit you before working here, right? Right. Because you were, you've been stationed all around the world. I with was. Your position. I, yeah, only in New York here. But in previous jobs, yeah. I lived in the Indonesian half of New Guinea for 
six months where I was traveling to villages where they still filed their teeth down to a point. You don't want to yeah. ask why. I lived in Jakarta for a year. I oh, lived wow. in Madrid for a year. So it was really exciting. I love to travel. I still travel a lot with my family. So specifically when it comes to credit cards. Um, so I started the Points Guy in 2010. Yep. How do you describe credit card marketing over the last 10 years and how yeah. it's changed? It has changed fundamentally. I mean, I say to my team all the time, payments and uh, banking are getting disrupted at a pace like we've never seen, like most industries, but marketing and the craft of marketing is getting disrupted even faster. So I think what's changed is marketers are getting much further upstream in the product development funnel instead of at the end where they're just given something to sell. This is the era of the consumer. The consumer is incredibly smart. They do their research. This is an era of search, an era of navigation. You've got to have a rock solid value proposition and product. And it's more important to spend your dollars there than it is on a big mass marketing campaign where you're not going to fool anyone if yeah. your product isn't awesome. And you influencers like you have been a big part of that. So let's talk about Sapphire because, you know, arguably Chase was behind Amex and when it came to proprietary sure. cards. What? So you've been along for the whole Sapphire journey, right? Mm -hmm. So what was the initial strategy with launching the Sapphire product and how have you seen that evolve over the years? Yeah, there's a great Harvard Business Review study on Sapphire. If you're like a wonky marketer, you'll really enjoy it. You have to go back to 09, which by the way was not a great time to launch yeah. a credit card. <laughs> so in August of 09, Eileen Sarah, the former president of the card business and Gordon Smith, my boss, really saw some white space in the market where millennials and, and younger people didn't have an affinity or real loyalty for any card out there. So the original no-fee card launched where you could go direct to advisor. There was a great fee, uh, sorry, there was no fee, but there was a great points offering, and then there was the 1.25% accelerator mm -hmm. on air, airline travel. And packaging mattered. The card itself was gorgeous. Yeah. There was no number on the front. The number was on the back. Was there blowback at first? Like A little bit. I remember actually when... We called it the preferred. other front. Because people would say, I'm in rural Indonesia and my taxi driver needs to do an etching. Yeah. And I remember then you guys came out with the etching above on the back. So we you did. could actually do that. You could. You could. But it really caught on. And we saw that there was some insight that people felt like there wasn't a card out there for them. Well, clearly caught on because everyone else is doing it, it now. We had 90% OSAT rates. We had 85% of people say they would refer a friend for that card. So it, we really tapped into something. So, and then you launched Sapphire Preferred with mm -hmm. the big points bonus and then transfer yep. partners. So for me, right. as an affiliate and card marketer, I remember when it was almost soft launched, I feel like in the in the insider travel sphere. And then, you know, you, yeah, mm -hmm. with the transfer partners, you guys didn't really market that you could transfer United at first. I don't know whether no, that was- No, you did. Yeah, <laughs> well we did and then- People figured it out. Yeah, yeah. It, so it mm -hmm. was, you know, so Preferred for years was the, the top dog and actually, kind of crazy. Preferred is still a huge. Some people thought that card. Reserve was going to come in and completely cut that business. Has that been the case? No. I mean, it's segmented really well. People choose which one is right for them. They're different value propositions. They're different price points. And people find the card that works well for them. I think one of the things that we've learned with the Sapphire brand, and I think the millennial audience in general, for all of the research that's been done about them, what they really want is value. Mm -hmm. They're incredibly smart and influencers again help that value proposition. So when preferred, sorry, when Reserve came out at a $450 fee, they immediately did the math and said, well, wait a minute, there's a $300 travel credit, yeah. there's a $95 fee for preferred. If I do the yeah, math, we did this the math. is like a really great. If you great spend $8 a day in travel yeah. or dining, you're, you're making it up. Check. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there's still a huge portion of people that 
fundamentally don't want to have a $450 annual fee, right. no matter what, right? So that's right. what- yeah. We have a card for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was an exciting time. So Chase, you guys chose the Points Guy to launch Reserve as a Correct. strategic partner. It was a wild summer behind the scenes working on our strategy and yep. social media. And to see it launch that first day was it's something, I mean, it took my business, it's kind of funny over the years, in, you know, in 2011, Chase allowed me to start the Points Guy full time and grow it to, where we are today, and then Sapphire really took it to the next level. Mm -hmm. um, so what was it like for you as CMO at the time to see it, the excitement build up, and then the actual acquisitions go through the roof upon you know, the first day we launched? It was awesome. I mean, we blew through our annual estimates of how many cards would be acquired within two weeks. And back to the point of the marketing playbook changing, this was the first time we saw it really, really play out, which was we put most of the marketing in the product benefit. The value proposition spoke for itself, 100,000 points, three times on travel and dining, $300 travel credit, you know mm -hmm. all this. Yeah. And it just caught on. We dropped it in the market, sort of Beyonce lemonade style, <laughs> like didn't really make a big formal announcement, yeah. didn't do the traditional product launch. Did people internally think you were media. crazy by not doing that traditional launch with the billboards and TV and a, a little bit, but remember it leaked. Yeah. So we said, well, let's just get it out there yeah. and see what happens. And all of a sudden it just took off and you had the unboxing videos yeah. and you had the, uh, you know, just sort of craze over the whole product. We did do a campaign later on, as you know, with James Corden, but this was like three or four months into yeah. the campaign and it was still kind of digital and niche. It yeah. wasn't a big TV blowout and it worked. The consumer found it on their own. The consumers are really yeah. smart. So talk about Sapphire Banking, you know, when you created this product, like who is it for? Sure. What do you think the most unique thing about it is? So we learned so much from the Sapphire cards, as you know. We learned that millennials want value, they want experiences, uh, and they want quality. And if you look at that, the behavior we're really trying to drive is top of wallet and primary bank. Primary bank relationship is the stickiest, it's the foundation of a financial relationship, but yet no one knows the name of their checking account. Mm -hmm. No one has any loyalty to their checking account. They may have loyalty to their bank, but not their product, which doesn't make a lot of sense when you see how loyal people are to their credit card. So we thought, why don't we take the same insights and benefits that drove the Sapphire card and launch a banking product. So value, no ATM fees. We know that's the number one thing that's that so ticks annoying. off customers. Even though there's a whole ATM yeah. network that you've invested in and logically you could explain it, people don't want to have to pay to get to their money. Especially no when traveling abroad. Oh, totally. Yeah. Or on, on your ATMs or yeah. anyone else's. Um, no foreign transaction fees, no wire transfer fees, basically no fees on everyday banking at large. We want free commission-based trading with the U.S. Trade product, which didn't exist a few years ago, we just launched that product. So you can sign up and you can trade for free on your phone. Oh, wow. Which is great. And then you can get experiences. Nobody gets experiences with their bank account unless you're a CPC yeah. customer. I know with the US Open, when I went into branch, they were like, oh, Mr. Kelly, do you want US Open advanced tickets? And right. Then, right. Yeah. So what but other, for where, banking, do, yeah, where do people you? People don't typically get that. And yeah. we've seen with either a Chase Lounge or a Sapphire Lounge, that's really catching on. People mm -hmm. want a place to go. They don't want to have to wait in line. They want a refuge. And so how can we So scale even that? Sapphire banking, well, actually you have to have a card to get banking. So any Correct. Sapphire card holder gets free access to Chase Lounges. They get free access to Chase Lounges and increasingly we're having Sapphire Lounges. We know customers love the airport lounge and we yeah. have access to Priority Pass and that's great. We want to be the go-to lounge when you get off the plane. So there's the no there's no future of a Chase Lounge in the airport, but what you're saying is you want to create these experiences outside. Correct. So do you have any 
new announcements? I know you've done Sundance for a while. Yep. Um, what we want to scale. So we've done Sundance, we've done the South Street Seaport, we've done Outside Lands. We want to have a Sapphire Lounge and a Chase Lounge, sometimes one, sometimes both. People don't necessarily want to be in a club. Yeah. They want to be in a place with people like them where it's kind of a VIP experience inside of a great experience. And also exclusive entrance lines. Is that something you're yeah. planning? Yeah. Yep. I hate waiting in line. The blue carpet. Yeah. My readers will kill me if I don't ask. So the 524 rule is um, a rule where if you get, have five credit cards from any issuer over the last 24 months, you can't get one of the you know premium Chase cards. Why do you guys have that? And is there any chance of it changing in the future? No. <laughs> um, we have that because we want to be top of wallet. We want you to be engaged with the card. We want to have a relationship with you. We want you to be invited to accept other Chase products. You see gaming behavior in the card business where people kind of chase a premium and then they exit the mm -hmm. card as soon as they can. We really want loyal customers and so the 524 rule encourages that. So your advice is if you get a card just... Use it. Yeah. It's a great card. So in terms of new cards, we've seen a big push into the tweener category, right? Between the 150 and $300 range, the new Southwest card, Amex Gold just bumped to 250. Do you foresee a Sapphire product between preferred and reserve? Yeah, that Southwest card is a great card if you fly Southwest. We always look at it and we always see if there's a gap in the market that we can fill. We feel like we've got two really strong cards that are performing very, very well with preferred and with reserve. And now with Sapphire Banking really taking off, we think that's a very good mix, but we're always looking at it. So, you know, we talk about millennials and Sapphires are clearly a hit with millennials. What do you think about Gen Z and looking forward the next five years in credit card marketing and how yeah. you think about that? You know, it's interesting with the millennials, so much has been written about them and they're sleeping on couches in their parents' basement. The oldest millennial is starting to turn 40. So we're seeing this transition from the, I want experiences over stuff, I want to live an interesting life, to I just don't want to live a boring life yeah. now that I'm getting married and having kids, but I need to figure out how to accumulate houses and investment accounts more responsibly. Mm -hmm. The Gen Z thing is interesting. They do seem to have a lot of the same trends of millennials. I have two of them in my house. But it will be interesting to see how their financial behavior adopts. Everything I believe is going to be done in the phone. Mm -hmm. My kids don't know how to turn on the TV. Yeah. I can't imagine they're going to want to pay for things that's not yeah. either on the phone or contactless or something, but I think we're really just learning. Has, have you guys been, I know my nieces and nephews all are just glued to YouTube. And yeah. Are you shifting and your advertising stuff. funds into video a lot you know, more? Or? Well, I think the trend for marketers is how do you become your own media company and hmm. your own content company? Because any advertising supported model is under threat. And as I said, my kids still don't know how to turn on the TV. If you go into digital, however, you have bad ad units, yeah. you've got pre-roll, you've got mid-roll, you have things that even if the numbers say they work, you know the consumer hates. Yeah. How do you come up with content that goes direct to the consumer? How do you become much more of an e-commerce company when distribution has been democratized? Because just supporting somebody else's content with an experience the consumer doesn't like, I don't think is sustainable. And now to the fun part, Kristen. <laughs> Are you a points girl? Of course. How do you use your points? I am a reserve only girl, and I took my family to Paris and to Kenya this summer, all on points. That was Kristen Lemkov, the CMO of Chase. Chase Ultimate Rewards points are some of my favorite points to earn and redeem, and I think most of the TPG office would agree. The other cool thing about that episode is that TPG's very own senior credit cards editor, Sarah Silbert, explains the best ways to maximize your Chase points. It's episode number two. 
All right, before we move on to hear from Joanna Garrity, our third and final best of boss lady, let's take a quick break. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome back to Talking Points. I'm your host, Brian Kelly. We're wrapping up this best of episode with Joanna Garrity. She's JetBlue's president and COO. JetBlue announced transatlantic flights back in April, so I caught up with Joanna to hear about their expansion plans. Joanna also shares advice for women in aviation and how she worked her way up the company. Here's Joanna. You guys finally announced, instead of teasing, about flights to Europe. And the announcement was you're going to be flying to London. Correct. Probably the worst kept secret out there. <laughs> Let's go over for anyone who's been living under a rock and hasn't heard. Yeah, sure. So we announced um, recently that we'd be commencing service to London in 2021. We're very excited about it. It's been a decision long in the making. It's part of our Boston and JFK strategy. It's the uh, top market that JetBlue does not currently serve out of both of those um, locations. And we are very excited to announce it. And as I said, it's been the worst kept secret <laughs> out there. Um, actually, the day before the announcement, our London pin got tweeted out. We and, called that a teaser. And so why London? You know, as I said, it's the top market that we don't currently serve. Um, it's a big O&D market. So we think there's plenty of opportunity for um, better service and great competition. JetBlue does very well when there's an opportunity to provide better service at a competitive fair. And if you look at the fares currently in those markets, uh, it's ripe for JetBlue. A- amen. And, and just so for those listening, O&D... What does it actually mean? Origin and, and destination. destination. So, so a lot of people on both ends. Yeah, business travelers, meaning that the, the JFK to London is the round trip. Connecting traffic will be part of the strategy, but like majority of the tickets you plan to sell will likely be Boston to London and vice Correct. versa. Correct. Yeah, we built our business case just on um, originating and, and origin and destination traffic on JetBlue. So uh, partnerships will be a part of the strategy, but it's not dependent on partnerships. And this is a question I'm interested to ask you because we're launching the Points Guy in the UK. It's our number two market. It's still small compared to, you know, we're pretty well known in the US. I mean, it's 2021, but are you going to start? building the JetBlue name in the UK for those people on the other side of the pond? Sure. So we have a pretty good reputation already. We do have more than 50 airline partners, and we partner with carriers over in Europe. So um, we will likely leverage our partner airlines. But And but TAP is a big one, right? TAP's a big one, Aer Lingus. Um, but you know, we, we definitely have opportunity to do more brand building um, on the European point of sale, and we look forward to doing that in the coming, coming months. Now, you haven't discussed fair pricing because we're still a couple years away, sure. but... But the strategy will be similar to what you did on the transcon market, come in and... And disrupt. Yeah. I think if you look at what we accomplished in Mint, um, it's been simply remarkable. When we started, you know, fares, uh, walk-up fares are well in excess of $5,000, and we have driven those prices down by significant numbers. We've also, with the service that we offer in Mint, introduced a level of service that just did not exist before Mint. You know, there was, I think, one market that had a live flat seat when JetBlue launched. Now 10 markets at West have a live flat seat, and that's because we came in with a better product, better service and a lower price and force everybody to raise their games. Yeah, and, the food, uh, I mean, yeah. the, one of the things, I mean, the food on Mint is truly, 
It's tapas style, so you get to choose three smaller entrees, but it is freaking delicious. You've flown mint more than I have. <laughs> I, I'm like, I always sit on mint and I'm like moaning. I'm like, yeah, I'm like licking my fingers, like throwing my hands up in the air. It's like actual food that like you would in a restaurant like be it very satisfied with. All right, Joanna, I know we just jumped right into it, but let's learn a little bit about you because, you know, you've been at JetBlue now for 14, over 14 years. Yeah, over 14 years. And before that, you were a lawyer. I was a lawyer, yes. How does one you go? You were at Morgan Stanley, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And so how big was JetBlue when you joined? So JetBlue was 34 destinations, uh, 9,000 crew members. And to put that into context, we are 22,000 crew members now and 103 destinations. Wow. <laughs> How does one go from being a partner at a you know, high-powered New York law firm to now essentially you know, running day-to-day operations at a top airline? Yeah, I mean, I loved being a lawyer. Um, I always had a lot of fun, very detail-oriented, represented airlines and aircraft manufacturers. Okay. So that was the space that I was in before I joined. I did litigation and regulatory work. And then I um, joined JetBlue in the legal department, and I was actually outside counsel for JetBlue for several years. So, you know, the, the airline, especially in senior management, is very male-heavy. Like, mm-hmm. what for women who want to get into aviation, a very male-heavy industry, like, what advice could you give to someone who wants to get in and, and get into a position of power like you have? Yeah, I think take risks. Um, for me, you know, I've had a lot of different jobs at JetBlue. I was head of our people department. Um, I ran our customer experience um, department, so an operational role for four years. Um, and all those things were new to me and um, some more exciting than others, but you learn something in all of these new opportunities. And I think taking risks um, is really important. And applying for jobs, even if you don't have the exact set of skills required, I think it makes sense to put your hand up because you never know what may happen. And I often think women sometimes are reluctant to put their hat in the ring, so to speak, because they don't have all the qualifications. And that's something a little unique to women, and and you shouldn't shy away from doing that. Which of your roles were you most nervous about right before taking when you got put in a different, a whole different division? I think taking the head of HR, taking the head of our people team. I was chief people officer for a while, and I went from managing a team of about five to 300. And that was a big difference because all of a sudden you start um, really thinking about how you lead and how you rally that number of people around um, a common mission and a vision. And all those leadership books that you read become uh, very important, and they make a lot of sense in that context. Uh, Whereas before, um, I had a great team of lawyers that worked with me who were very, very much self-starters and and individual contributors. And this this change into the people role was a big big step for me. And as president and COO, what, what does a normal day look like? A normal day. Um, there's always a lot of emails, uh, but yeah, I think everybody has, has that challenge. But um, a normal day, I spend my time uh, uh, looking at our operational performance. So a lot of da- a lot of dashboards, a lot of metrics, uh, making sure that um, we're performing in the ways we need to perform. And then are there opportunities that I identify or my team identifies that uh, we need to address? Um, taking a look at our revenue, obviously, and how our daily bookings are amounting to, and then a series of meetings on different initiatives. I also spend quite a bit of time out in the field. JetBlue is a very hands-on airline. Um, when we fly, we introduce ourselves to the crew. We raffle off free tickets. You know, we help our in-flight crew members tomorrow. Do you ever, do you ever fly incognito? Uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think spying on people yeah. is not the culture at JetBlue. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's important, and I want our crew members to feel that they can talk with me on our flights and, 
let us know what their problems and challenges are so we could look for ways to solve those. We have 103 cities, as I mentioned, I've been to, I believe, 65 of them. Mm-hmm. For over two years, Robin and I, our, our CEO, he and I kind of split the network and tried yeah. to hit all 100 cities. Transitioning back a little bit, uh, you know, the London news is so big for you guys. But it is also a risk. You know, there's a lot of you know, big competitors. I mean, are you still considered a low-cost carrier? Do you still consider JetBlue? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's part of our DNA. Um, keeping our costs low is one of the ways that we are able to be competitive with the legacy carriers. Uh, when we go into new markets, so, you know, the Detroits, the Atlantas that are heavily dominated by legacy carriers, um, they respond by reducing fares um, mm-hmm. and, you know, try to kind of wait. And cursing you guys. Out, <laughs> and cursing us, yeah, and trying to wait us out. And one of the ways that we can last longer in those markets by is by making sure we have low costs. Yeah. And you're not worried that this is taking on, you know, biting off a little more than you can handle or? I think we're, you know, we're definitely confident that we'll succeed. Um, as I mentioned, large O&D market here. Um, we're not reliant on partnerships to feed our uh, our network. And, you know, the play is largely around the mint um, product. And with our success in transcontinental mint, um, we're confident that we can bring you reimagined experience here. And, you know, we do have more than 50 airline partners and uh, we can you know, uh, work with them and really enhance those relationships. But um, it's a different, it's different. We'll be able to feed the network out of the United States. A lot of our, uh, or my fans, every time I fly Mint, they're like, when can I get it? And, you know, JetBlue is very coastal. You know, what's holding you back from really getting that cross-section, the middle of the country into the network? Is it is it slots in New York or just strategy? Like, it's our, I mean, we have six focus cities, Boston, New York, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, San Juan, and Long Beach. And our strategy has been largely about building relevance in those cities. And, you know, we grow between 5 and 7% a year. Um, and it's important for us to um, maintain that level of growth around sort of that, that area. And what that means is we, you know, we aren't going to bring in 40 planes a year to just add cities. Um, we have to be controlled with how we do it um, and make sure that, you know, we're building our margins at the same time. If we had all the planes in the world, um, there would be a lot of cities that would be uh, really exciting to fly to, um, but we need to be measured. Um, we are the only airline since deregulation, 1978, that has not gone bankrupt hmm. or um, merged or been acquired. And that's a absolutely remarkable feat when you think about 1978 and, and how many airlines have come and gone during those years. And part of the way you do that is by being very measured with your growth, mm-hmm. um, running a smart, strong business. Costs are a huge component of that, delivering a great customer experience and having a different, uh, unique culture. Now, I know JetBlue, in maintaining those costs, you know, used to include free check bags several years ago. That went away. Are there concerns that uh, Wi-Fi will be charged for? And the ancillary fees is a huge way to bring in revenue. What's your take on the, the future of JetBlue changing that? in-flight model. Yeah, I mean, we have no plans to change the um, in-flight model with um, in-flight entertainment. Um, free televisions have been, you know, sort of one of the marks of JetBlue since we were founded. Um, we know customers fly JetBlue because of our um, extra legroom. We have the most legroom in core of any uh, carrier in the United States. Um, I will fly, my sister lives in Jacksonville, I fly JetBlue home even on a, an economy flight because the legroom is way bigger than even first class yeah. on the regional jets. In some jets cases, at, yeah. yeah. The other, so. Yeah, and then, you know, free uh, entertainment has been a big component. We have, you know, I think by most accounts, the best the best Wi-Fi in the sky, um, and then our friendly service. So those are the three big things that differentiate JetBlue from um, the rest of the competition. Um, I'll kind of emphasize the free, the, you know, the friendly service because that is really we think the secret sauce behind JetBlue. But yeah, it's it's been um, I think what's what's brought us this far and what will carry us into the future. 
That was JetBlue's president and COO, Joanna Garrity. The full episode is number 18. That's it for our Best of Lady Boss episode. You can listen to the full versions and more at thepointsguy.com slash talking points or wherever you get your podcasts. Please make sure to subscribe to Talking Points for free and share everywhere. Tell your friends, tweet the podcast, post it to your story, subscribe to it on your mom's phone for her. And check back each week for more episodes dropping now on Wednesdays. I'm Brian Kelly. Safe travels. 